welcome to the Joyful Nourishment Podcast, a place for conversations around all things food, eating, body image and nourishment. Here we'll explore and unpack all the things that gets in the way of us having a kind, compassionate relationship with food and eating in our bodies and also how we can find our way back to joyful nourishment in our everyday lives. I'm your host, Lynn Thorstensen, a registered nutrition therapist and body image coach based in the west of Ireland, and I am so glad that you're here. Welcome to this episode of the Joyful Nourishment podcast. So today I'm talking to Emma Murphy. Emma is a psychotherapist specializing in disordered eating. She worked in private practice as an eating disorder specialist for over 11 years, and she has extensive experience of working with both individuals and groups on all parts of the disordered eating spectrum. Emma is a recognized expert in disordered eating and regularly speaks internationally on this topic at conferences and summits. She's also an accredited trainer, and all her trainings are approved continuing education programs. Since 2017, Emma and her team has been training other health professionals in person and online in her evidence-based program for binge eating disorder, Eating Freely. And there is now a network of eating freely practitioners throughout Ireland, the UK, the USA, and also as far as field as South Africa and Singapore. So binge eating disorder is one of the least well-recognized eating disorders. And I actually learned from Emma that it was only brought into the DSM-5 in 2013, which actually is just about 10 years ago, which is so recent, right? But um, binge eating disorder is by far the most prevalent eating disorder. Um, Emma has made it her mission to raise awareness of the spectrum of emotional eating and binge eating disorder among both professionals and the public. So the almost one in five adults who struggle with BD, BD can access the specialist support they deserve and need to overcome this difficult and often long-standing issue. In 2023, Emma was accredited as a global thought leader in trauma-informed healthcare by the All-Ireland Business Foundation. She is a really passionate advocate for the integration of psychological support with mainstream medicine and actively campaigns for medical practitioner and others working in obesity-related healthcare to be trained in and understand the impact of trauma in unhelpful and unhealthy relationships with food. So she is a BA honors psychologist. She's a postgraduate in counseling psychotherapist. She's a PTEC trainer, HCC approved group facilitator, eating disorder specialist and psychotherapist. Thank you, Emma. That was a very long introduction, but I know you have been around quite a while. So um, fair play to all your accolades and accreditations to date. But it's great to have you here. (laughs) And I suppose for full disclosure, I should also mention that I am one of Emma's trainers on her Eating Freely professional training programs. So this is our connection um, at the moment anyway. So Emma, I like to start these conversations with my guests because I'm a curious person and I always want to know like what brings people to this work? And when I say this work, working with people around their relationship with food eating and their bodies. So would you like to share a little bit about your background, your story, and kind of how you get all the way through this very long introduction that I've just <laughs> brought? Um, yeah, so thanks for having me, first of all, Lynn. I do appreciate it. Um, and I suppose 
so I've just turned 55. I turned 55 last month. And on the day after my 30th birthday, I was having something of a, a crisis, an existential crisis, <laughs> and my 30th birthday coming up, um, a bit of a what am I doing with my life sort of moment. Um, I was working in small business development in the Chambers of Commerce at the time, but I was also volunteering at the Rape Crisis Centre. And I had done about a year with the Rape Crisis Centre at that time. So dealing with you know a lot of people, victims of sexual assault, sexual trauma, um, as a volunteer. And I also, you know, having left school in the 80s um, in Ireland, I was unusual in that as a female, I went to university um, and that wasn't, you know, terribly common back then. Like, you know, we were still being encouraged to go and be uh, teachers and secretaries and guards, you know, but mm-hmm. like after university. Um, so to go and, and do a univer- university course was, you know, it's still like it was a, it was a bit of a big deal. But I didn't enjoy um, university first time around. I dropped out after a year. So I never completed my degree. And that didn't matter in my 20s. But it began, it, it was becoming more important to have a qualification, to have gone to college and have a qualification in the workforce. And so I was looking at all these business development courses and commerce and, you know, all sorts of economics and these kind of things, because I was in small business development in the Chambers of Commerce. But like, I hate that stuff. Excuse <laughs> <laughs> me for a moment. <laughs> so even though I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, I need to do something, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I suppose it was because I was working with the Rape Crisis Centre, I thought, like, I really enjoy this. I really enjoy helping people. I really enjoy being, even though it was fairly traumatic work. I could um, only imagine. And I was actually curious, I just interject, like, what sort of support would, did you get as a volunteers doing? doing I have to say, all credit to the Rape Crisis Centre. They're absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, they, and they really do give their volunteers a huge amount of support, far more than a lot of other, other organisations do. I, I will say that. Yeah. Uh, so we were very, very well supported um, but I was going to meet victims of sexual assault in the sexual assault treatment unit in the Rotunda Hospital. Like I was meeting somebody in the hours after this, you know, incident had happened to them okay. very much at the cold face. And our job was to be an advocate for the victim and to 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 actually be um, the buffer between them and the legal process and the technical process, because they were going to be like immediately re-traumatized, you know, if they like, so that was our job was to be that advocate. Okay. Um, that was my first experience of being, I suppose, an advocate for somebody, um, you know, who maybe was unable to speak up for themselves in the moment or, you know, do what they needed to do, you know, and we were also there to kind of guide them on and to explain to them what was going to happen and help them understand, you know, the consequences of them or the implications, I suppose, of them, you know, even being at the unit and, and, okay. You know, the guards were there and you know so so anyway long story short the day after my 30th birthday I uh walked out of my office in the Chambers of Commerce of Ireland um at lunchtime and went down the road and enrolled for a four-year psychology degree starting that September and I had no idea how I was going to pay for it how I was going to do it how I was going to work. <laughs> like it was like really a calling you know and I went off and I and I, I just trusted that I was doing the right thing and, you know, the universe would, would make it happen. And it did. 
So I'm not going to go into the, you know, the gory details of my three jobs and renting out my apartment, <laughs> moving back in with my parents and having to sell my car and buy a moped. And I did all of that. <laughs> um, I immediately was drawn to the area of disordered eating, studying psychology. Uh, and I didn't really know why, because I never struggled with food myself. I was the opposite of somebody who has an eating disorder. Which is really interesting, too, because that's quite rare, I think, because a lot yeah. of people who work in this field, myself included, have a history of disordered eating or an eating disorder or eating disorder recovery themselves. And that's kind of the, the, the way in. So, yeah, so you're a unicorn in the, <laughs> in the thing. Well, I'd say an outlier. An outlier, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't have lived experience. Um, I had a friend who had a very bad eating disorder when we were teenagers. And I, I watched that, you know, like very, very close quarters. Um, I had worked in the airlines also. I'd worked in the Middle East and the airlines and there's a lot of disordered eating in the airlines, you know, so it's not that I didn't know it or hadn't seen it, but yeah, uh, no personal experience, you know, myself. So didn't really know why I was been drawn to that area, but like very interested writing essays on it, you know, the whole lot. And uh, as soon as I qualified, um, so did the four year degree in psychology, went on to do my counseling psychotherapy postgrad. And as soon as I qualified, I began seeing clients with disordered eating. And then I went on and did specialist training in the area myself. Um, and it was it was years later in supervision with my supervisor. And I was saying, like, I have no idea why I want to work in this area or do that. Like, it's really hard, it's really hard work. And, they, you know, it's, it's difficult. And, you know, it's trauma. It's all trauma based. I didn't realize any of this when I was going into it, you know. Um, and I and I enjoyed it because I like a challenge. But um, my my supervisor said to me, you get the clients you need. Um, and I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, Emma, you are the clients like this is your personality type. You're an all or nothing perfectionistic high achiever. You know, you're either doing it all right or all wrong. You're highly self-critical. You have a healthy dose of imposter syndrome. You are a people pleaser. You're strangely unassertive for somebody who's as lobby as the damned. Like you can be very unassertive at times. You know, your boundaries, you you overgive, you overfunction. And I'm just sitting there <laughs> looking at her going, huh? Ah, <laughs> that's, yeah, wow. That is really interesting how even mm. though your own lived experience didn't play out in that particular field, but the personality type that as we, you know, we know, and I, I'd like us to talk a bit more about that, is that of, you know, the things that you just mentioned, perfectionism, overfunction, highly self-critical, you know, imposter, never good enough, uh, all of those things that are really one of the strong contributing factors to people developing an unhealthy or an unhelpful relationship with food. So, yeah, good yeah. mirror of your supervisor there. Yeah, and that, like, it really was that mirroring, you know, um, and the the transference and the counter-transference we had and we talked about all of that and we unpacked all of that. But yeah, so... Yeah. And the one thing I knew that I was good at was working with the clients because I got it. I got them. I got them. It wasn't mm -hmm. the it's them. It's how they function and operate in the world, you know, and how do you unpack that and disentangle that and say to them, look, there's a better way. So anything that I was doing for myself, as I learned to move from my head to my heart, as I learned to trust my intuition, as I learned to open up and become more self-compassionate and, you know, um, take better self-care and you know that's still something I have to work on every day I, I still over function I still do all those things but I, I the, the thing is you develop awareness and you catch yourself sooner rather than later exactly. um, 
but everything that I did for myself, I was able to bring it into the work with the clients and they really resonated with it and, and got and benefited from it. So that's where it came from. The Eating Freely program, for all that it's about emotional eating and binge eating disorder, it's actually about breaking down the parts of your functioning system that don't work and rebuilding better strategies for operating in the world. And when you do that, you won't rely on food and you will nourish instead of punish yourself with food. So that's where it mm. came from. Ah, yeah. So that's where it came from. And that is very much what that what what the program does, right? It really works on on helping us like break down those unhelpful habits and patterns into something that's more helpful. And food is really it can be a symptom of 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 those on unhelpful behaviors right um you know and that's that's you know you often hear that it's like it's not about eating disorders it's just sort of eating isn't about the food necessarily it is a symptom of, of other things going on so tell me emma like this that you discovered with your there your supervisor around you know personality traits that are not always they can be helpful, but then if they kind of get amplified, they don't tend to be very helpful. And yeah, tell me what, what are those and what are the ones that you've seen like over the years in clinics? And I'm wondering as well now when you're been training professionals more so in the last few years, just to see that coming to you again in the, in the professionals. Well, Lynn, I don't have to tell you as one of our trainers, you know, a good 50% of every, every one of our groups is, you know, people with lived experience. Um, you know, and a lot of practitioners who are drawn to this work have the same personality type. And we see that all the time. Now, the wounded healer phenomenon is alive and well in across all areas of, you know, health professions. Um, so, you know, turning to help other people as a way of helping ourselves. But, you know, we do have a lot of practitioners who have lived experience and come into this work because they're passionate about being able to help people sooner rather than later and, and avoid, help other people avoid having the experience they had, which is often very poor um you know and it takes people a long time to find the the correct help and the special support that they need you know because there's such a lack of training and education in the health system um around disordered eating but with regard to the personality type then you, you're talking about somebody who is high functioning on a lot of levels so that perfectionistic high achieving all or nothing thinking they're either doing it all right or all wrong and they do tend to take on inappropriate responsibility. Um, so over-functioning, as we mentioned earlier, you know, that I, especially in a family, um, and I am going to speak to that in a second about the trauma. So, and it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, um, to separate out the nature versus nurture piece of this. How much of this are we born with and how much of this are, is, is embedded in us in an early age because we lived in an environment um, that, that meant we had to over-function. Mm. Um, so the over, I'm going to, and I will, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but the other traits that we see is, you know, that highly self-critical inner voice, um, you know, constantly, you know, you could have done better, you could have done, you got 95%, why didn't you get 100%, you know, that kind of, the imposter syndrome, it's only a matter of time before they find out who, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing, um, a fear of rejection, fear of appearing weak, fear of being vulnerable, fear of asking for help not very emotionally intelligent. And I will say that about myself, you know, very mental and cognitive and in the head, it's all heady, heady thinking. Yeah. thinking. So, you know, we want to bring people down into their heart and connect their, their heart and mind. Um, 
So they would be uh, and people pleasers. So putting everybody else ahead of ourselves, you know, and, and again, it's overfunctioning. Yeah. Um, and to speak about the overfunctioning piece, the more I, I do this work and the, the more, um, and, you know, I don't think you'll ever stop learning <coughs> about trauma, but the more I learn about trauma and the more I understand trauma and the more I understand our clients, you know, we are trained in the circumstances that we are reared in to, to overfunction. So again, I did not have an eating disorder, but did I have trauma in my life? Yes, I did. My mother was nearly killed in a very serious car accident when I was about eight or nine. Um, and I will say that to this day, I don't remember very much about that time. And I'm talking about a two year period. Mm. Um, I don't remember very much of that time at all. Um, I was only speaking with one of my own practitioners. Um, I went to a a session with somebody only last week and we were talking about this and I to this day I still can't remember an awful lot about yeah. that time. Um, so when I was training I didn't even realize that I'd had a trauma mm. um, I blocked most of it out it was just part of my story my mother had an accident you know la 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 you know um, but my mother couldn't she was in hospital for six weeks she couldn't walk for six months afterwards she had severe clinical depression for two years after that and I lived in that environment yeah um, and had to overfunction. that had to step up and help my dad with my younger brother and sister and you know all of that stuff and and this is exactly what our clients go through yeah and yet I had never joined those dots either that that was you know what had happened to me but I do think you're born with certain personality traits which then you're going to step up and do that overfunctioning piece and again not burdening my dad he was already busy enough looking after my mom and yeah. my and he's not a touchy feely guy anyway so like he you know not for nothing his family weren't very good at the old emotions and the emotional expression um yeah so like the more I look back and see like I am an absolute mirror and model of our average client coming into the program yeah. I just never used food as my coping strategy yeah that, that that just wasn't the avenue it took for you but yeah of course you know it can be different things like it can be food it can be shopping it can be sex it can be alcohol you know, whatever we find that is helping. And I, also, I think that, you know, over-functioning, particularly when it happens in childhood, it is a, like it is a survival strategy, right? It is a survival mechanism until it doesn't work anymore, like when we're adults and it's not, it's not something that it's possible to keep up forever because it, you just burn out, right? Yeah, yeah. And Brene Brown talks about it. Uh, you know, I love Brene Brown and I talk about her book, The Power of Vulnerability. And she talks, she's an overfunctioner. She talks about it in the, you know, yeah. it is. And it is a surprise. That is what I did. I stepped up. I took on a role. I will always say again, I'm very calm in a crisis. Like if I suddenly realized the house is on fire, I would very calmly be able to walk downstairs, throw a blanket over something, grab the dogs, run out and walk out the door. I would be as cool as a cucumber in a crisis. And I think that's how I deal with stress or drama. I just suddenly yeah. go into like it's auto, it's almost like an autopilot mode, and that's my coping strategy. That's that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. And everybody has their coping strategy, but you know, the food, as you know, is um, people looking for the the physiological relief from the cortisol. So the cortisol gets them so wound up that it's the dopamine that they get from the high fat, high salt, high sugar, high fat. And if you've nowhere else to turn for self regulation, comfort, you know, um, processing, you know, ability. Yeah the food becomes the comfort blanket absolutely and also sometimes um it's the only thing that's available particularly in family situation where you know parents or caregivers you know they have too much stuff going on they're either working all the time or they have their own 
mental health challenges and stuff and food is available and you know, I th- I do believe we're also wired for food for to be a comfort, but then that becomes like the step in for the other care that that technically should have been there, and then we're just carrying it it through. And I've had that. I'm sure you've had this experience as well with with people when somebody says, "I don't understand." Like when I'm feeling stressed, this is this one typical food that I would offer. It's this one typical food that I'm always binging on, and then when you keep digging there is an associated memory with that particular food. It was either, I remember somebody talking about how they were always binging on childhood cereals. And I just thought yeah. it was such an interesting wording because they didn't use a particular brand or a specific type. It was like childhood cereals. I'm like, oh, okay. And it just meant that those were the cereals that were in the house and that was the person was eating when the parents were fighting or they weren't available. And this was the way of, of, of soothing themselves or taking care of themselves in the moment. And, you know, yeah. that that's... I, I find a lot of clients do uh, turn to childhood sweets, childish sweets, like bags of Haribo or, you know, who knew, you know, the, the, those kind of chewy kind of, like they are, they're kids sweets. Mm. Uh, I had one client who used to always binge on sweets locked in the downstairs bathroom in her house and she was in her fifties, but she was never allowed to have sweets when she was a child and she used to have to save her pennies and kind of squirrel away pennies from her pocket money until she had enough to go down to the shop and buy herself some sweets. And then the only place that she could eat them where her mother would not find her was locked in the downstairs bathroom. So in her 50s, she was still eating sweets locked in the downstairs bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is like when you can, when you help people connect the dots like that, it's so powerful because there's at the point in the story where it becomes really internalized shame around eating these sweets in the bathroom, but not actually understand the underlying purpose of what need that you're trying to meet by doing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I just, that's one of the things that I personally love about this work when you can sort of really see how the, how things are speaking to us through the language of food or the behaviors we're doing with food that are actually about maybe feeding our heart hunger or, you know, it's not about sometimes it's about physical hunger, but sometimes it's a, it's, it's not about that. Um, but then, you know, we have the diet culture comes in and says, Oh, this is all wrong and bad. And, and of course it is, it can be incredibly distressing as well with, with binge eating. So I was also curious and to just circle back to the personalities around this all or nothing thinking and like do you want to explain if maybe some people are kind of know what it means but you sometimes call black white thinking but like what does that like how would you know if if you're kind of stuck in that so I you know again with the food the way you're going to see it is you know the client decides okay that's it now I'm back on my plan I'm back on my diet you know I'm sticking to my whatever calorie number they've got in their mind you know and it's you know, there's a long list of forbidden foods, things they can't eat when they're on the diet. It's all about deprivation and, you know, all of the restriction. Um, and then the first bite of a forbidden food. So the classic example that I always give, and I'm sure you're sick of hearing me give this example in because I talk about it all the time. But like Mary is at work. It's her friend Joan's birthday. It's they're all in the staff room at 11 o'clock having the tea break. Mary's on her plan again, you know, like um, sticking to her diet. And Joan has brought in a cake for her birthday. And immediately then Mary's in conflict because, you know, Joan's her friend and she'd like to have a rice cake, but she's, you know, on her diet. So she has to have her rice cake and her green tea in the corner while everybody else is having coffee and chocolate gâteau. And then eventually she'll say, 
you know, I'm going to have a slice of cake. But then the guilt kicks in. So everyone leaves the staff room and Mary stays in the staff room and polishes off the rest of the cake, then goes out and has fish and chips for lunch and, you know, continues to you know, completely, has completely fallen off track. Um, that is the all or nothing thinking where one bite of a forbidden food just opens the floodgates and the rest of the day or the week or the month or the year is yeah. spent. And I'll start again on Monday. I'll start again tomorrow. I'll start again on Monday. I'll start again in September after the summer. I'll start again in January after the end of the yeah. year. Yeah. So that, you know, and you know, we talk about lapse, relapse, collapse. Um, our clients go from 100 to zero. And there's no room for negotiation there. And the first thing we do, as you know, is like, can you just keep it at lapse? Okay, it happened at 11 o'clock. Draw a line under it. Yeah. You know, get back on track. Eat your lunch. Yeah. Bit of protein. Get your blood sugars balanced again. And you can still have a good day for the rest of the day. That's a lapse that happened, but you can still yeah. actually get on track. And this is a revelation to clients. Yeah. They come away from that like extreme ends into this messy middle and it's like it's it's not you know to I suppose like when I hear you talk about it, it's like you know talking ourselves off the ledge like that one bite or that one slice of cake like it, like in the grand scheme of things it's not a, a catastrophe it really isn't a catastrophe or disaster but what turns it into a disaster is the reaction the client has to eat to the eating of the one slice of cake, where if they were able to say, it's Joan's birthday, I love chocolate gatto, I'll have a small slice of chocolate gatto and a cup of tea, I'll enjoy it, um, you know, and then I'll just move on. And like that, but that takes quite a bit. <laughs> it does. And I think as well, I think about sometimes people who never struggled with a relationship with food, like the fact that that's a kind of a big deal to somebody that it swings like that rapidly from all or nothing might even seem a bit incomprehensible. But when you're in the smack ban on in the middle of it, and this is just, it is so distressing. It's yeah. so distressing. Right. And, and I think it's, I wonder as well. And from your point of view, you worked in this area. It's like, it's kind I wonder if this is kind of what pe keeps people stuck because there's, like you know you nearly have to step out a bit to see is this really as disastrous as it feels when you're inside of it because people just go from like diet to binge to diet to binge and just continuously beating themselves up in the process not realizing that all the dynamics that are play that keeps the stuff it says obviously there's just something wrong with me and that and that just keeps the the whole cycle going and not necessarily even thinking well there's nothing that can be done about it yeah um, so that's like there's something wrong with me or I have no willpower or I'm so weak or I can't stick to the diet. And actually what they don't understand is when there's trauma underpinning, you know, or adverse childhood experience underpinning it, um, what's been triggered is actually way beyond your conscious control. So, for example, if you have an altercation with somebody in work, so say you have a run in with somebody in work and there's a bit of a tiff over something or, you know, you're asked to do something which you don't feel is fair or whatever it is, um, that is what happened today in the moment with you as an adult today. But what is triggered is old feelings and old emotions, maybe from a situation where you were bullied as a child or your mother's love was completely conditional on you doing everything she wanted you to do or her showing really, um, you know, severe displeasure or even anger if you didn't, you know, dance to her tune, so to speak. And I'd be speaking there about maybe a parent with narcissistic personality disorder where it's all about them and not about you. Um, 
So what's actually been triggered is a very old response. Um, and of course, back then, what you learned was that if I eat, you know, sugar or fat or salt, um, I, I ca- it calms me down from the, you know, the, 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 the stress and distress I, fe- I felt when my mum got angry with me or when, you know, I was being bullied in the schoolyard. Um, so this is the connection, you know, that we have to break. So the program, the Eating Feely program, you know, as I say, if you imagine like a, a sort of, you know, a, a, a four way crossroads, we're trying to separate food from feelings. But we're also trying to separate the past from the present, because what's been triggered today is actually it's very old and it's completely beyond your conscious control. So I feel a lot of clients get a lot of relief from that, where you're kind of saying it's not me, it's my brain. Mm. But we do have to do work, conscious work to rewire the brain so that it's no longer react. It's, it's no longer overreacting to what's happening um, in the moment today. Yeah, that makes that makes complete sense, I think. And then I know as well like you know a part of that is the, the brain rewirement and then there's the re-nourishing part as well to making sure like helping people come off this restrictive patterns and the swinging from the all or nothing in eating from the diet restriction and you know helping people like be adequately fed basically right yeah, so because that also of, plays into it a lot of the behavior around food is punishment that we are unconsciously they're punishing themselves with food they don't feed themselves properly they neglect themselves um, because there's a part of that shame, that deeply internalized shame, which, again, is rooted back in the in the trauma, in the past, in the adverse experience. Um, the underlying message is I don't deserve to feed myself properly. I don't deserve to be healthy. I don't deserve to, you know, take the time to cook myself nourishing food or spend money on food for myself. Um, and there's a lot of magical thinking there, too, as you know, Lynn, you know, people thinking, well, if I just don't eat, I just don't eat for a while. I won't buy any food. I just won't eat. And then yeah. I lose weight and then I'll start eating again. And I know. Like they just there's so it's like many- if I don't have food in my fridge, yeah. Sometimes not not much at all. Yeah. Um, I, I won't eat. And that's also I wonder, like, you know, like a kind of a, a dissociation or disconnection from our physical needs. Because how can you eat like well or nourishing and supportive when there's like nothing available to make an actual meal of? at hand but they have no plan to eat well or not or nourishingly or you know that's not that's not in the head in their head at all you know they've been so caught up in the diet the weight loss you know kind of cycle um the magical thought is i just won't buy food and i won't have it in the house and then i won't eat it and then i lose the weight and then i'll start eating again but you know the brain never remembers that actually i always eventually crack and ring the takeaway or get into the car and drive down to the service station or just raid the freezer and eat whatever's there or whatever it is because Um, you're going to get hungry (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) hungry is a basic physiological thing you know completely normal as well uh, which, you know, I think, yeah, that is something that I've really started observing over the time when I moved into the non-diet space, how much like hunger even is demonized, right? And then that impacts on what you're saying when like, people have, are caught in the magical thinking, well, if I don't keep the food in my house, like I won't eat anything and it'll all be fine and completely forgetting that at some point you're going to get hungry because that's healthy and normal. And then eating whatever, because at this point it becomes a bit of an emergency. And then that just like adds to that shame that there's 100%. something wrong with me, even though actually this is completely normal. It's like a f- functioning, well-functioning human 
gets hungry on a regular basis like and yet it can be so difficult to bring clients and support them into that habit of eating regularly three times a day and that can't be underestimated either I mean it really Mm -hmm. irritates me when I go onto like Instagram or TikTok and I see a lot of people calling themselves emotional eating coaches or binge eating coaches and they're like just eat three meals a day and two snacks don't get hungry and you're like okay somebody who has had trauma and is you know unconsciously neglecting themselves and doesn't understand the meaning of self-care is highly self-critical and you know is constantly punishing themselves for something that was not their fault in the first place back in the past that you know you are you might as well be talking to my Jack Russell downstairs you know for all the sense you're making to our average client with long-standing binge eating disorder that relates back to childhood trauma or adverse experience. Yeah, and that is the, this was one of my personal reasons, I think, for starting a podcast, like we can have these conversations and bringing in more nuance and complexity, whereas with social media, it's like really bite-sized. And even though there is a validity to, you know, eating three meals and two snacks and regular eating, but it's the just, that is the problematic. And then if you're in that cycle and you're like, I can't just do it because there's so much unpacking and support and small steps that has to happen in between before that becomes something that is possible for you. So those posts it, are shaming, you know. Yeah, they, exactly. They actually exactly. trigger shame and the person's looking at them going like, that is so far away from where I am right now or what I'm able to do. Um, and you're there, sorry, and I'm, I'm going to call it out completely, in your perfect body, usually in, you know, your workout gear with your air, your beautiful hair and your makeup and you're going, oh, just eat your three meals and your two snacks and you'll be fine and I'm like okay so I I have a name for there's a cohort of people on social media who I have a real issue with and I call them the recovered gurus um they may well have had their own lived experience with disordered eating and that's absolutely fine and it's valid but have they gone and done the correct training to you know really be able to correctly support people or have they just taken bits of their own experience and you know pulled bits of things that they did maybe if they went to therapy or a coach or a nutritional therapist you know so one thing I would always say to people is to get a lot more discerning about who you're following um and do they really understand you know what they are doing and do they have the training to correctly support somebody who is struggling with disordered eating um and, and it's a big issue for me and I'm very pleased actually to see that you, I, I recently participated in a program with YouTube um, who are now really moving towards making sure that the health uh, information that's being shared on their platform is coming from credible uh, experts. So they're, they're, they're going to be introduced this soon. It's called the Health Shelf. And you have to be a credentialed, um, in practice, trained clinician in the area that you speak about on YouTube in order to be able to share that content on YouTube and I am delighted and they they they, I was part of the program with the head of YouTube health content in the UK and you know he was saying like we have so little credible information about eating disorders on YouTube and I said yeah you do (laughs) you know yeah yeah um, so that's something you know and fair play to YouTube for taking that stand um but we have a long way to go in terms of you know helping people understand just do a bit of fact checking. Who are you following? Do they know what they're talking about? Are they trained? Yeah. Um, and if they're not, unfollow them. Yeah. And you know that 
I, I think that's really great. I didn't I didn't realize that. And I think what you speak to as well, partly, and I, I'd like to just segue into this, um, is that stereotyping as well of eating disorders. And we, you know, in your introduction, you said like, you know, binge eating disorders you can have to like one out of five people. It's the most prevalent eating disorders. And of course, there's a spectrum as well between the diagnosable criteria and then people on meeting exactly that. But also, you know, having many of those behaviors and symptoms, but maybe not the severity that you'd get a, a BED diagnosis, but still equally as distressing. But this kind of stereotyping around uh, what an eating disorder looks like, who gets it, um, and the the health. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that in particular, maybe in the context of uh, binge eating disorder or an emotional eating, but also kind of how, because, well, I'm a little bit younger than you, but, you know, as moving into the, like the forties and fifties and beyond, like, because I think most people, unless you're a sufferer, think about this young person's disease. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'd like us to talk a little bit about that as well. And because it gets, this is what I've noticed now being in my forties, all of a sudden when I'm in platforms like Instagram, I don't see that many people like look like me unless I've been following them for the last 10 years um, and even older again. I, I'd say there's a handful of people that I follow that are in their 50s, you being one of them, Louise, that I've also spoken to as part of the series and a few others, but like there's not, yeah. not that many because yeah. it's not influence or kind of no well I mean I didn't grow up in this era and I mean I still don't really understand Instagram or TikTok I mean you know I have somebody who helps me as you know I make the videos and somebody else helps me you know put them up there because I actually I couldn't do it myself I just it's so far beyond me I see my daughter 17 and a half and like her phone is surgically attached to her hand but you know <laughs> beyond me um but you have to be you know as they say like it's important to be on the platforms and to be and to be that voice you know of the older kind of person um, I don't mention my age. I should I should actually mention my age more often, I suppose, on the social media platforms to, you know, to get more of our, our age group in. But as you know, I've always said this, you know, and certainly when I was in practice, um, my average, the average age of our clients is between 35 and 55. And I'd say an awful lot of them are between 40 and 60. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have had clients coming into me at 59, 60 years of age, like the, the decade birthdays, the big birthdays tend to be triggers. You know, the 30th birthday was the one that triggered me to go back to college. You know, the 40th birthday, the 50th birthday, the 60th birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, the oldest client I've ever had reaching out to me for support for the very first time, having never sought help before, was 68. And that was during COVID. Um, wow. Yeah. And I in our and I can only speak to Ireland in particular in 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 my you know context um i think the reason why a lot of the clients are in the 40s or 50s is because of the link back to trauma so i was born in 1968 i grew up in ireland in the 70s and the 80s i remember very well what it was like we were a repressed beaten down society we had no emotional intelligence it was actively discouraged we were meant to follow the priest and the doctor and the you know like the 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 government um the government and the church were absolutely hand in glove in here in Ireland. Um, and the five main types of trauma, you know, that people went through that I talk about all the time, alcoholism in the family, depression in the family, diagnosed or undiagnosed mental illness in the family, 
bereavement and loss again holy catholic families mothers having a baby a year guaranteed you know at least one or two of the children are going to have you know a, a, an illness a disability or we're going to die um, so death and bereavement and grief and loss are often, you know, part of the presentation with our clients, our Irish clients. So talking yeah. very culturally contextual. Here yeah, yeah. And then, of course, physical, mental, emotional, sexual abuse, um, you know, and we have a charity here in Ireland, one in four, which supports uh, survivors of sexual abuse because they estimate that, you know, there was a period of time where one in four children was abused at some point, like I which just... is just incredible. So. Um, I think the reason why clients are only coming forward in their 40s and 50s here in Ireland is, um, A, the, the dots haven't been joined in terms yeah. of that wasn't normal. That was trauma. The emotional eating goes back to then, um, you know, and work needs to be done to, to separate those two things. And the other thing is quite often um, people have to wait for somebody to die. So they have to wait maybe for a mother or a father to die before they'll actually go and, and get help because it can feel like a betrayal to talk mm. about their family. Um, and that's a huge issue in therapy is, um, but my family loved me or my mummy, my mother loved me or my dad loved me or, you know, whatever one, but at the same time, they were an alcoholic or they beat my mother or they beat me or they abused me or, you know, so there's, there's, it's a very entangled sort of enmeshed thing. And often um, anyone in particular who was exposed to violence or abuse of any sort um, or chaos or unpredictability, there's that real disconnect between, um, uh, we use this construct in, in therapy, like there's like good daddy and bad daddy or good mummy and, and bad mummy. And, and there's a dissociation there. So yeah. often that parent has to die before the client feels free to be able to go and talk to somebody else about it. And uh, do you think as well that some of those, that client cohort, the people in that age bracket, and, and even, even with like more recognizable eating disorders like anorexia, for example, there wasn't really any help at that, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And then, and even with the, with the binge emotional eating, people then end up, end up in like the likes of Weight Watchers and Slimming World, particularly if there's been weight gain and then cycle through that for 20 years, continues mm -hmm. beating themselves up mm -hmm. because I should get, be able to get a handle on this. With your high functioning, high achieving person in other areas of their lives, I don't understand why I can't get on top of this. Yeah, 100%. Um, everything you said, you know, and I mean, binge eating disorder, as you said earlier on, I, I actually couldn't believe it. I only realized there, you know, a couple of months ago, actually, it's 2023 and it's 10 years since binge eating disorder went into the DSM. Now, in the context of the DSM and, you know, the American Psychiatric Association who write the DSM, that is relatively new, to be fair. It only gets updated about every 15 or 20 years. Like, so, you know, that is a relatively new uh, diagnosis, which is unbelievable, I think, given that it's yeah. been around for 10 years. But at the same time, the medical profession are not being trained, are not being educated. They don't know about it. They don't understand it. And even more insidiously now, we've got this whole narrative around obesity is a disease and you treat it with medication and surgery. Um, so, you know, it's 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 a mess, to be honest. It and the mess. medical profession don't help like they really are actively not helping um people get the correct support that they need which is far more psychological and emotional and nutritional than it is medical it's just it's not you don't need medical help no. you actually don't need medical help unless you're having a symptom 
you know, as a consequence of the eating, which could be like IBS or, you know, thyroid yeah. issues, whatever it is, you know, that's fine. And there's a, there is sometimes a place for medication, but really it's about separating the food from the feelings, separating the past from the present, resetting the relate the client's relationship with food and um, helping them to let go of what no longer serves them so they are yeah. free to move on with their lives. And there, there's no medication in that picture. No, there isn't. And I think when, and, and often that level of support that needs to happen really gets missed when all that is focused on is, you know, trying to make the body smaller or, you know, and, and I, I, I'm not sure I want to go in that direction of that conversation no, no, today, fine. but like this is that, that is hugely problematic because so much gets missed, particularly for people living in larger bodies. It's like, well, if you just lose weight, everything will be fine. And, you know, yeah, I can see you rolling your eyes and I'd be rolling my eyes. And, and then it just, none of that is helpful on any level um, for, for people to try to, whether there is, and, and just because somebody is in a bigger body doesn't necessarily mean per se that they have struggled with binge eating either. But if the person does, whether that is a weight loss medication or sending them off to a slimming world or Weight Watchers, something like that, is not going to do anything. It's probably going to be making the situation even worse. Yeah. Um, and it just gets missed that that's not what they need. And a lot of the reason it gets missed, I think, is because of the deep entrenchment in weight stigma, anti-fat bias, fat phobia that is rampant across, you know, the health health professionals as well. Um, so you know, no shame then, no shade. Like people, we only know what we know, but if we do know that this is harmful, we should be able to do better. So that's just me getting off that little soapbox there. <laughs> but wow. um, yeah, I, I think that um, that is important. So really thank for bring, bringing that up. And like, I was really helping people understand that there is help and support, there is hope and but going down the sort of continuing on the cycle of, of trying to fix the body is actually not where the problem or the challenges lies. And that it's never going to get us out of that no. challenges with our relationship with food and, and eating. No. So Emma, um, I suppose, is there, is there something that you like from this conversation that we've had today before I ask my final question that, you think would be really helpful for the listeners if they find themselves and they're identifying with the all or nothing thinking or binge emotional eating was there one or two things that you would kind of like to part with some some part of your wisdom a tool or a practice that would be really helpful for people to move them forward in a really in a creating a better relationship with food and eating yeah I, you know uh, <sighs> This is, and Brene Brown refers to this as well, like tips and tricks and people like tips and tricks, you know, like it, it gave us a top tip. Um, honestly, I'm going to be really truthful and say, get help, like reach out and ask for help um, from somebody who knows what they're doing. You know, we have a network of professionals, as you know, Lynn, you are a professional, I'm a professional, um, and we have a network of professionals who actually know what they're doing and can help. And, you know, we've tried to make our help as accessible as possible, as you know, um, anything from, you know, the card deck and ebook right up to, you know, working one to one with somebody for six months. 
Um, so reach out. And if you are really, if you've been really struggling with this for many, many years, you know, there is no quick fix. And, uh, you know, there's no top tip I can give you that's going to help. Um, get professional help and get yourself sorted sooner rather than later. And, you know, you will thank yourself a thousand times over after you've done it. But, you know, it's very difficult for our client group because that idea of um, spending money on yet another thing that isn't going to work, you know, that's their pattern and that's what mm. they've seen because they've been looking for the help in the wrong place. Yeah. But if you invest, take the chance, invest the time and money in yourself. And it's more about the time and you like doing the work um it's not really about the money um you know it's just do the work and you know it's an inside out job you have to get your mind and your heart connected and um operating from a completely different position so we talk about operating from um a frequency of love instead of fear everything that people who are locked in that cycle are doing is driven by fear it's fear of being found out it's fear of being inadequate it's fear of being judged it's fear of failing it's fear of never finding love it's fear 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 and actually the real key is being able to love yourself enough to choose to take better care of yourself consciously every single day and that you can take that as a soundbite but oh my god like there's work to be done to get to that place that is not easy that is not an instagram meme or a gif you know that's just going and doing the work with somebody who can guide you expertly through that process and bring you out the other side with a completely different relationship with food your body and yourself yeah thank you for that I I would agree um like wholeheartedly of course and I I think it's nice to bring up that what you're bringing up actually that the 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 greatest tip is actually do get support if you can, if it is available in any form, as and if it is accessible, just do that. And also realizing that this works takes time. There isn't any shortcuts. I think sometimes we might do stuff in chunks because maybe that's what feels accessible. But it will take time. That's just a and and you know with anything like particular if we've been in a cycle for twenty thirty years like one masterclass or even you know reading one book isn't going to it's going to plant the seeds and open the doors but I think getting that uh, professional support and having another human working alongside you and supporting you and guide you is really really valuable in ways that maybe sometimes is hard to um, articulate unless you have already done that process yourself whether it's on this particular challenge or it's in other life challenges like doing therapy um on other life or coaching on other life um challenges so yeah thank you for for bringing that up in a in an age where we I think we're often looking for like short tips and tricks can I just do this you know even working for something that's as fundamental for this work as self-compassion as an ongoing practice it's not like a one and done you know and it's I I struggle with it like you know it's not my default it's not my default it's a practice and it's a practice as well it's not just something you learn it's something you have to continuously doing so I would like for us to close with my question that I ask my guests because this podcast called joyful nourishment um and 
I would like to ask you, Emma, what does joyful nourishment mean to you? So for me, um, I get a lot of my joy and peace of mind from being by the sea. Um, so that is something that I try and do uh, every day. If I can, I'm very lucky to live by the sea here and we bring the dogs for a walk, you know, certainly five days out of seven, we, we bring them for a walk along, you know, the marina and the sea, you know, and, and that just the sea is such a powerful connection for me. Um, I don't know why I, I must have I must have had a past life in Atlantis. That's what I always say. <laughs> um, but or I was a dolphin in a previous life, one or the other. But um, I just I absolutely love being by the sea. So just put me on a beach, put me by the sea. And immediately that just, you know, it, it, it literally feeds my soul like that's just I can't even explain it. And my dream would be to live literally in a house where I'm looking out at the sea but I know that actually I'd get nothing done because I could actually sit and look at the sea for hours and just I'd never get bored of it so that's certainly something for me is, is spending time by the sea that that and I and I'm so lucky that I get to do it very regularly here um the other one for me is around food absolutely it's having the time and the space down in my kitchen to cook from scratch and to feed, you know, the people I love. So, you know, I love nothing better than when I've had the time to make a really nice dinner and, you know, myself and my husband and my daughter sit down and we eat together um, and they really enjoy the food. And I really enjoy the fact that I made that food for them. That is something that really, again, it just, it feeds my soul. If there's nothing, and I, I can be a very neglectful wife and mother at times. I, I, I am that perfectionistic, high achieving person. I spend far more time up in this attic working than I should. Um, you know, I don't I, I can't claim to have my work life balance right because I don't. I know that I work more than I should and, and don't spend enough time with my family. But when I do, I food is my priority and feeding everybody properly. And that's one thing that I prioritize. And that brings me joy. Yeah. Um, yes, Thank you. I, I just love hearing people's answer to that question because it can go all over. And I just. For me, it's like reminding ourselves that food is part of that joyful nourishment and we can get there through this, through our recovery process. But also that joyful nourishment can extend so much further beyond just food itself. So um, thank you for sharing that. So a few fine words, Emma, if people want to look you up, say they're a professional, they want to do the training. If they're the listener is somebody who is like, I'd like to get some help with my relationship with food where they can where can they find a practitioner you did briefly mention your cards where can people find out more about those great um so first of all i do try and make stuff available obviously free so if you're following me on instagram or if you follow me on youtube i release two videos a week and they're designed to really help be very practical and focused either for practitioners or clients to kind of get the help that they need um, so we do try and make a lot of stuff available, you know, um, without any obligation or charge. The cards, the four energies of emotional eating, that is the card deck that I developed last year. Um, that is basically our eating feeding program in a box. Um, if you buy the card deck, you will also get the ebook for free. So the, the ebook gives you a much deeper dive into using the cards. And again, committing to that practice of maybe using the cards journaling on them reading the book and working your way through them and then if you do need help and support reach out to one of our practitioners in the network maybe just have one session just one or two sessions might be you know enough along with doing this work other people may need more support more work um and then so go to our website eatingfreely.com and you can find a practitioner who will work with you either in person or online there and again you can just have one session or you can choose to to buy into a full you know three or six month program with one of the practitioners 
Um, and if anybody wants to train with us, same deal, the information for all of our training from a CPD masterclass right up to our full training to specialize in this area is available on our website, eatingfreely.com. Thank you. And I will link to all of this in the show notes. Thank you very much. Thanks again. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you for listening to Joyful Nourishment. This podcast is produced solely by me with no financial backing and your support means a lot to keep this project going. If this episode has been helpful in any way, it really helps this podcast to help others if you click like, subscribe or leave a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. And of course, you can also subscribe so that you won't miss any future episodes. Find out more about what I do in my private practice and what I offer over on straightforwardnutrition.com. And I am currently taking on new clients, so you will find a link to book in for a free 30-minute session in the show notes if this is something you're interested in. And finally, please come and join the Joyful Nourishment community over on Substack by subscribing to my newsletter.